Hey folks, before we get to the interview today, I want to take a moment to talk to you about your meat. Yep, your meat. As many of you craft beer lovers already know, it's better to buy independent. Do you know who's making your meat and where your meat's coming from? Stith Family Farms has been serving as your personal farmer since 1945, and that's right after World War II ended. The third generation of these Kentucky farmers don't use any hormones or antibiotics. In fact, Stith Family Farms raise all the feed themselves, including non-GMO corn. And with plenty of acreage, they provide their hogs with seven times the available space as commercial hog operations, therefore generating zero liquid hog waste. And guess what? Stith Family Farms is now shipping to 23 states, bringing beef and pork straight to your door wherever you are. And if you're in Kentucky like me, see if you're in a county where they hand deliver. And let me recommend the Stith Family Farms Shipping Basket, a collection of some of their most popular products. It contains ground beef, mild sage sausage, a rump roast, cheddar brats, hamburger patties, barbecue pork burgers, all beef hot dogs, boneless ribeye steaks, and even New York strip steaks. And you know, after having the cheddar brats last night, I was already thinking of when my next meal is. So if you're craving some farm-to-table products, head on over to www.stithfamilyfarms.com. All right, happy to be joined now uh, from, I'm presuming, Massachusetts, Joel Shelton of the Shelton Brothers. Joel, thank you so much for uh, hopping on the phone today. Thanks for having me, Michael, but I'm actually in Manhattan, New York City right now. Ah, okay, well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when, when I think of, uh, you know, the Shelton Brothers are, of course, the, 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 the beer importers, um, and when I think about the Shelton Brothers uh, portfolio, I'm thinking of of Cantillon and, and De La Seine and, and all these other really, you know, just really great beers and uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit today um, to learn a little bit more about those storied beers and those breweries your relationship with them and kind of just how the in, in general terms how distribution really works and, and what all goes into that sure so yeah. if you could I'm just kind of curious about how all of this got started I mean I've heard something about Cantillon being the first uh, kind of like the the first beer that you've worked with and yeah, it's an interesting story, I suppose. Um, it, it's strange that we started with Cantillon, which now is kind of the most sought-after beer in the world. We never have enough of it, but we started off with it, and nobody wanted it. But it, it kind of happened very accidentally. My brothers and I were all kind of little beer geeks running around collecting stuff and trying everything in the early 90s. And I was a musician. I was playing the trombone in a production of uh, 42nd Street, the Broadway musical, and I was going around Europe with the Michael Jackson uh, beer books and just finding all these beers he was talking about, which we didn't really have in the U.S. And uh, I had a week in Brussels and I went to Cantillon for, a, you know, just a regular tour. And I had been looking for Lambiques that I, uh, you know, it was new to me and I didn't really know what they were. And I had tried a few and they were very sweet. And I thought, no, these these don't strike me as what Michael Jackson's talking about. And I went in Cantillon within a second. I, I drank it in the the lights went, you know, the, the light bulb went out over my head and I just thought, wow, this is, this is what I've been looking for. And it was just a completely different flavor of anything I've ever had. And I just sort of became friends with the family right then and there. I just was sort of raving about it. And the uh, brewer at the time, who's the father of the brewer now, it was uh, Jean-Pierre Vranois, actually came to the show with his wife. I think maybe the whole family came and he became a fan of the, the musical <laughs> and all this crazy stuff. So we just became friends and I brought a bunch of bottles back for my brothers and uh, mentioned that they didn't have an importer in America. And my brother, Dan uh, took the bull by the horns, as they say, and became an importer just to get his hands on Cantillon because he loved it so much. <laughs> and it, it's the, uh, the rest of it is very technical. 
as far as how it started, but that's the very beginning of it. Can you describe what uh, the Cantillon's Brewery is like? You, you know, believe it or not, I haven't even been in there since 1997, so mm-hmm. I don't have a perfect memory of it, and I'm going to go there this year on a, on a brewery tour we're doing. But it, it's a very industrial-looking place from the street. You don't really even notice it, uh, which is what all the really cool old breweries can be like in cities like that. But it's very industrial inside. If I, I recall it being a lot of, a lot of obviously, a lot of wooden barrels everywhere and uh, just kind of a little old industrial building, which is what it was, and that's what breweries were like, you know, in the turn of the century, 1900s. So it's it was nothing remarkable to look at, but it was just the flavors that came out of there that was that were remarkable and I I think they've gussied it up a little bit because it's gotten more popular to visit there. But I'm really looking forward to going back after such a long period away, which is kind of criminal. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit about your brothers? Well, um, we're all pretty close in age. I'm the second one. Dan's the oldest. Will is the youngest. Uh, as I mentioned, we all sort of got into beer at the same time, really in the late 80s when a lot of other people our age, we were uh, in our late 20s at the time or so. And... Um, we were all in different worlds. I was in the music business. Dan was had graduated from Yale Law School and was just sort of floating around consulting and not sure what he wanted to do. And Will was um, raising little kids, oddly enough. So we we're all in completely different places, uh, but all kind of doing the same thing with beer, just traveling and trying stuff and keeping in touch. And when the when the Cantillon thing, when I brought the bottles back, that kind of became kind of a kind of glued the whole thing together and Dan wanted to start this company called Shelton Brothers and um I didn't want to join it because I was I was working so much in music and I didn't join right away and Will kind of joined on later on um so that's that's what it was like in those days that's quite a while ago and I don't know if you want to know what it's like now but uh I think we were very young and fighting all the time (laughs) and now a lot of things have happened and I think we we're kind of older guys now we get along better but um We've all been three very different people, so it was never easy to to work together. But we all certainly had a passion for some of the same things, and that has not changed so much even now. Yeah, absolutely. Can you kind of just broadly speak on just those early efforts of starting out, stressors that may have been involved between just the brewery and the new distribution business? Yeah, well, the thing was when Dan Dan was the one who, as I mentioned, really got it cranking. He, he mm-hmm. Being a Yale law grad, he knew how to get around paperwork and legal stuff. And he he pretty much did it mostly on his own, I think. And he he really wanted to get Cantillon over. Didn't have a big plan about becoming this big importer or anything like that. He really wanted to get a hold of Cantillon. That's how much he loved it. And in order for Cantillon to agree... <laughs> to agree uh, to send the beer to him rather than someone else, because someone else came knocking too and wanted to bring it uh, coincidentally at the same time. Dan had to agree to get a whole container, <laughs> which is, uh, if you don't know, uh, people out there don't know, it's 20 pallets. It's a fair amount of beer uh, for something that no one knows what it is, and it's sort of expensive and really unusual at the time because no one drank sour beer in America in 1990. 495 when when he was looking to doing it we finally brought it over i think it was 96 so it was a big step that he had to just take this stuff a whole container of it and nobody wanted it but that was what he had to do to get the to get the deal with uh with cantillon so it was a really scary start and in fact dan uh lost money for seven years starting around that time yeah i can i can imagine now you know i mean if uh, if you got a container of cantillon right now in, in 2018 or 2019 you, you wouldn't have any problem getting rid of it how how long did it take to kind of go through that um uh, it, 
there's still some bottles floating around, I think, in his basement from those days. Uh, I think I might even have some. Um, it was a few years. I don't know exactly when when it was all sold, but it was, it's hard to believe now. But most people, they thought it had gone bad. A lot of people returned it to the shop. Some of the shops demanded he take it back. Wow. So I, uh, you would have to ask Dan exactly how long it took before that first uh, truckload was was actually gone. But it was definitely more than a year, and it was probably a few years. And it, it's hard to believe now, but that stuff would sell out in, in five minutes now. Yeah. But uh, we never have enough now, and everyone's always begging for it. And they just don't make very much. But in those days, they weren't popular around the world as they are now. They sold in Japan, and they sold a little bit in Belgium. And it was really struggling. So the world's very different now. But it was a while. As I said, Dan literally had to expand his uh, company to find other breweries just to keep it going because you can't survive on one brewery to begin with, especially something with that small of an output. And what were some of the other early, early breweries that signed on with Shelton brothers? Well, strangely enough, Kulmbacher, which is the biggest one that we ever had. It's the closest thing to a factory uh, brewery in um, Northern Bavaria and Franconia that we always focused on that area in Germany. So that was an early, earliest one, I think um, 97. So pretty soon after and then he's, he's also looked around a lot in Belgium uh, and, you know, uh, found Durank, which is really great stuff. And different and Mars, uh, we were walking around in Germany, I think it was in 97 or 98, and I had the little Michael Jackson pocket guide. And I said, oh, there's a brewery down the street called Mars. And we just wandered over there and he fell in love with the place and just got to know the brewer. And so we started with that a long time ago. Uh, there are just a few like that, Durank. Um, Geez, I and you know, and as I said, I wasn't really um, doing the business at that time. I was just sort of in the periphery of it, so I don't know exactly what order the breweries came in. Mm -hmm. But they kind of trickled in in the late '90s, and as I said, it took seven years before we made a profit. So there was not any profit into the early 2000s, and the only way to make a profit out of all these beers that no one heard of was to just sort of get a few more of them to make to to give you more options of what to sell. And all these breweries now that I mentioned are are pretty established in the U.S. at this point, but it was a very different planet in those days. Sure. Um, I would say that uh, one one way people might know Shelton Brothers is not just through the uh, the beer that you all bring in, but also a, uh, a pretty large uh, festival that yeah. has been going on for a few years now, going to different cities. I just went to the first one in Denver uh, just a couple of months ago. I was wondering if you can kind of speak on the festival. I know you aren't hugely involved with it, but just uh, what that experience has been like in watching it grow. Yeah, it probably sounds funny that I'm not hugely involved. But I've, I've been to all of them. And I, uh, I usually have a specific task because the uh, people in the office in Massachusetts, that's the home office, they're always the ones that are in charge of the whole thing. And I'm happy of that because it's just a huge, a huge job. It gets a little bit easier every year. We started in 2012. It was a massive, massive job, and we didn't know what we were doing exactly. But it's come off each time. And uh, I just find something fun to do. This, this year I was in Denver manning our table for tours, which we're starting to do next year. But uh, – it's just been a, a, a crazy task. And the goal was to offer a festival that wasn't just kind of a frat boy party. It wasn't just a bunch of sales reps <laughs> selling beer and hanging up, hanging up weird posters. All the, you know what I mean? It wasn't, oh, yeah. it didn't, it didn't, we didn't want it to be a thing where you just go around chugging as much beer as possible. We wanted it to be a thing where the brewers were actually there. You could have a decent conversation. And that was one of our rules. The brewers had to be the ones pouring. And it's gotten it's had to be relaxed a little bit, but it's still the still the concept right now. 
and we just always wanted to be different because that's kind of the uh, the Shelton way, I suppose. We've always been a little bit trying to be different. Um, but it was kind of we wanted people to take it more seriously and not just think, oh, the craft beer thing's just about standing around drinking as many samples as possible because it's it can be fun to do that. But we just thought, no, this stuff is these are some serious brewers, and we want it to be treated like that. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on American craft beer and the breweries that kind of. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a huge subject now. Yeah. Um, it's just the interesting thing for me is how how much has changed since uh, I and my brothers first had our, you know, had our earliest beer. We're, we're talking about late '60s actually, because our dad used to drink beer regularly and pour it in little Dixie cups for us at the dinner table. And it was something called Peel's Real Draft, as far as he can remember. Uh, Peel's being an old uh, German brewery, I think, in Pennsylvania or maybe in the Midwest. By then, it may not have been a real brewery, but it was a very hoppy kind of Pilsner. And so we started with that, and then we grew up. It was kind of like Miller High Life. I mean, I used to drink tons of that. And, you know, we're talking in the 70s, and there was the Budweiser and all of this stuff. And so it went from that to sort of getting into college, and we would try dark beer once in a while, Tuborg dark, things like this. It was very little uh, options. But, you know, everybody enjoyed the beer as much as they do now. It was just a different way. You just drank a lot. <laughs> but um, when the craft beer stuff came out, we kind of got into that in our late 20s and, when, you know, the late 80s, and that's leading into this time where I went on that tour. And then we all sort of fell right into it at the same time. We started home brewing and did all these things. And the American brewers in, in, the, in the craft beer uh, first, uh, it wasn't even called craft beer, I think it was called micro brew revolution. They were basically copying, you know, European styles, of course, and sometimes doing good work with it, sometimes not as good, depending on the brewer. For us, it was really fun because it was, it was like we went from nothing here almost to all these towns had these really cool bars that had their own beers. So we went all over the place. We went crazy, and it was very exciting for us. It was a different experience from going over Europe where you'd find the actual original thing. But the Americans were, the, the idea was, yeah, we can make it as good as that. And we were very psyched about it. We, we didn't have any idea we were going to become importers. But as the years went by, then it kind of went up and down. And it was easier to sell the imports in those days because they were clearly the originals and all that. Um, obviously, the last few years, it's gone kind of nuts. I mean, there's, I don't know how many thousands there are in just the last few years. And here in New York, it's gone from a handful to, 50 or whatever it is now mm -hmm. so they're everywhere and um certainly the quality is 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 completely another planet from what it was in the 90s and you know i guess the americans have gotten a reputation for being very creative with it and recreating the ipa and really taking the sours and doing a lot of things with them so it's in a way it's become like uh the whole world is trying to do the same thing now because people are following the american model of just putting crazy things in there and making the flavors as bold as possible. I think it's a mixed blessing in that, uh, I guess, having grown up with the real basic stuff and having a real appreciation for really great things like German lager. So sometimes I, I get a little tired of trying things that are as sour as possible or as strong as possible, whereas I, my go-to things are always more subtle. So I, I feel like the culture has gone a little nuts, but I think that's just a, a growing phase. And the younger you are, the more you're trying the crazy stuff and you sort of go over the hump at some point. Uh, we'll see what happens with all the 20 and 30 year olds, what happens if they end up like me someday. But um, it's, it's a little challenging for us now uh, because 
it's hard to bring something that we consider maybe we would advertise it as being very well balanced and very subtle. It's they're not really popular words at the moment. So it's a little bit we're a little bit sometimes it bugs us, but certainly uh, you can't argue with the culture and it's great that there's little breweries everywhere now. So that's very broad, broad look at it. Yeah, and and I don't know if it's a if it's a chicken or the egg kind of situation, but I'm wondering if it was the consumer that influenced those breweries to kind of go to those extremes, whether it's extreme on the sour, or extreme on the bitterness and the hop, or if the breweries kind of just taught the consumer to accept these things. Do you? Oh, I I think it's probably a mix. I I would hate to say what percentage of a mix, but. Um... The, the, the idea that beer could be sour, for one thing, you know, Americans, I remember going, for example, I remember going to a Cascale event here in New York, and it was a while back, maybe 10 years ago. And we would, we imported, you know, a fair amount of cask, and including sort of real lager from Franconia in Germany. The same idea, very live yeast kind of beer. And I remember talking to a younger guy who was sort of working in there, and he says, oh, I like the American ones better. They have more flavor. And that kind of stuck with me is that, that's kind of it in a nutshell, is that this idea that more flavor is automatically better. Whereas for me, it's more more of a depth rather than a boldness that, that I really appreciate. But I think that's the American uh, the American way in a sense is, oh, we can just do whatever we want and we can make it huge. We can do anything. And I think that's a good quality we have. Uh, it can lead you astray or it can lead you to better things. And I think we're seeing that in politics for example you know it's, it's our culture kind of goes nuts both directions it improves on one hand and doesn't get better and that but it's sort of extreme and uh people around the world are, are are taking that up now and the americans are sort of leading the way with that but i think it's in parallel that also some people are saying all right i've had enough of that and now i'm going to appreciate old-fashioned stuff because it just trends go up and down and that's also the culture so it's just there's no simple answer to it it's just everything's sort of all over the place right now but I think in general it's a very positive thing that it's fun. It's fun to have breweries everywhere, and it's fun to see what you know that that people take it seriously, and that more and more people care about what it actually tastes like. It's just uh, I think it's kind of depends on how old you are and what you've already been through uh, that determines what you're interested in. So I think being late fifties, I'm going to have a different interest than someone in their late twenties. But uh, we find often uh, a middle ground that we can all enjoy something at the same time, I think. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you could speak to any challenges that distribution companies or Shelton Brothers specifically is, is kind of facing right now, what, what issues there might be. Uh, well, there's always been the issue of sometimes the system, the, the tier system can result in prices being higher than brewers and, you know, uh, and the, that we or the brewers would like or suppliers in general. Um, that's just an ongoing thing that, it seems to be just the way it's going to be and uh, not to place blame anywhere in particular, but it's just, uh, I think a lot of our stuff, for example, gets sort of priced out just because it goes up incrementally. That's just a general thing. Um, as far as being importers, we, we do sell a lot of them. We help sell a lot of American beer because mm-hmm. some breweries don't want to do the uh, paperwork and they, they like our business model and they work through us. So we are involved in a lot of the American ones and that, that's actually a little bit easier because they're more trendy even. But as far as uh, being importers, the challenge now is that there's so much local stuff that it's hard to get attention. And it requires uh, us suggesting to brewers they have to make something new every day, which is the, the trend here now also. And I think that's hard for everybody. I think everybody in the whole industry has to keep up with this demand for new beer every week. 
I, and I, I imagine everybody would say the same thing that it's everyone in the industry. It's way more work for the same amount of, <laughs> of money. Perhaps I could put it. I know? would, I would even um, say that goes down to the consumer as well. There's, there's this, this untapped culture, the, the, the drive to always get something new and different. Um, yes. Yes. And, and it, it's, it's exhausting, honestly. Yeah. Um, personally, I, I could, I could drink, uh, the same beer the rest of my life. There, there are a lot of them I, I could choose from. If I had to, I would have to sit down for a while and decide. But um, I don't, I don't really care to uh, have something new every day. I do it just because I'm in the business and this is what happens. And I take notes and I put little grades on it and all kinds of stuff. But I, I sort of hope this culture changes and maybe with the generations it'll change. Maybe the kids coming up won't be into it like that anymore. I think that's the main thing. I think it's fun that a lot of people are, are taking notes and collecting and doing all this. I used to collect a paraphernalia too, and I, I don't know how I could do it today because there's so many breweries. But it's a little bit of a, a youth thing where people are very excited and they want to try stuff. And I think our culture gets more like that, more than other countries maybe. Maybe other countries are following our lead because they're all going to be the same eventually. But I think it's ultimately not to the benefit of the quality because I think the quality has always been there. It's just it got degraded for a while, and that's why the um, the new craft beer movements came up is to is to rectify that. But now it's almost going too far the other way, where we're trying to make crazy stuff for their own sake, and it's actually not better in some cases. Sure. So so it's a, yeah, as commercial commercially, it's it's just very challenging, and it's sort of fun to offer new stuff every week. But we would rather sort of have something settled in, some things that are really great. We'd rather have that, and that's not happening as much as it used to. We're, we're nearing the end of 2018. I'm wondering, you know, if you had a crystal ball, what do you see in the future for Shelton Brothers in 2019? We're we're wondering what's going to happen. We're trying to expand to be to do different things. I I mentioned uh, the tours. We've been talking about doing tours as a way of bringing people over to see these uh, really marvelous places that we've gotten to visit over the years. And we always wanted to share that experience. That was our goal. And now it's also become a way that we can sort of do other things in our business, not just bringing beer over, but bringing people back over there to see the beer in its natural habitat. So touring is something we're trying to do a lot of. Uh, we're just sort of starting that this year and just giving it a go. As far as uh, beer in general, we we don't know what's going to become big. Certain things seem to be becoming more popular, like uh, classic German uh, Pilsner, for example, seems to be taking off again, which is sort of an opposite with the other trend, as I mentioned. Um, I don't know if sour is going to get less popular. It doesn't seem to be. It seems to be a permanent thing for the moment. Um, import sales, I don't necessarily think it's going to get easy. It's not going to get easier. It doesn't seem like it. Um, as far as local breweries, I, I can see that some of them who are based more on creating their classic styles and have, and have built that up over years are, are struggling now with having so much competition with people who are just creating new things and the new things just sell automatically. And so people who can just crank out new stuff, it doesn't necessarily have to be as great as the old stuff, but that's, that's making it harder for people who want to focus on their, on their standard stuff. So I think it depends on whether people are going to want more and more quick variety or not. I think that's the trend and I don't know if it's going to get more so or less so, but I imagine it's going to be getting more and more like that for the short term, at least. I wish I could tell you, <laughs> but yeah, 
Yeah, I'm sure. Um, all right. Well, one last question before I let you before I let you go. If if I'm in uh, New York City and I and I want to go uh, to a beer bar, where am I going to be finding Joel Shelton drink? Oh, I'll be in front of my TV at home drinking the beer I got from my warehouse. <laughs> I I most of the time. I mean, right now it's December, so I'm going out as much as I can just because it's the holidays. In fact, I'm meeting a brewer tonight from a, from a Middle East. So we're going to go out and do things like this. I like to do that, and we have a lot of events here. Um, usually when I'm out, uh, when I was younger, I was out at bars constantly. I'm a little bit less now. I'm 58 years old, so no excuse, I suppose. But I spend more time at home uh, with the dogs and things like that and just uh, drinking beer that I pilfered from our breakage department in our warehouse. And I always liked um, – people assume that I uh, – I, I mean, I always liked cheap beer just as far as uh, – not spending money <laughs> obviously oh, yeah. i i mean it to me in a way I, I i don't feel like i can afford to go out and buy pints every night of what what craft beer is costing now mm-hmm. i know it sounds crazy but i feel like uh most of it is is overpriced in new york for what it is and i, I really do most of the time drink at home and i you know i just try different things because i can collect all these bottles that are just being trashed in our warehouse anyway but um when I do go out, it's like I said, it's often at events because brewers are always passing through. So that's really fun. You know, the brewers are there and we're going to some of the, the, the most cherished bars here that put on these events. It can be di- several different places. Um, but the place I go most is this in a local Irish dive nearby called Malachy's. And I just love it because it's quiet. It has really funky Christmas decorations at the moment and uh, old people sitting there and you can talk. And all I can get is Guinness, but for me, that experience is just as good as getting a $8 little glass of something in a really noisy bar. It's just has to do with my age, I guess, Michael. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Age, personality, <laughs> just sometimes the atmosphere is better than the beer itself. Yeah. And it, it depends if I'm in a party mood, then, I'll, then, I, then it's all good. And a lot of times I really do enjoy that. And I really like the people in the business up and down, you know, uh, in New York, it's great if you go out to events and you'll run into dozens of people from distributorships from breweries from importers everybody you run to everybody and everybody's really great i have to say and i i feel a little guilty not being out there more because it's a real great scene here and uh but so um you know i do get out once in a while and uh but i definitely spend way too much time in front of the tv with uh, <laughs> my bottle collection well uh, thank you so much for your time today i i look forward to hearing more about the uh, about the tour uh, that shelton brothers is going to be doing in the upcoming year or two that sounds exciting Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here.